Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. In Matthew chapter 11, we discover that John the Baptist, who earlier preached the kingdom of God in the wilderness, is now imprisoned. At this point in the story, we do not know how John ended up in prison. All we know is that he preached the kingdom. Looking a few verses ahead, we learn from Jesus that this very kingdom suffers violence at the hands of violent men. It is Caesar, the Antichrist, and Herod, the traitor, a false king who pertains to his Roman master, who in Matthew struggle to take the kingdom of God by force. Later in chapter 14, we learn of Herod's petty role in John's imprisonment. All the same, hearing news of the works of Jesus Christ, an imprisoned John found hope against hope and sent word to his rightful king who proclaimed, The blind receive sight and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, verses 1 to 6. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 286 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We completed chapter 10, which dealt with these beautiful questions of conflict and tension through disobedience to God's instruction, drawing upon the teaching of Micah. We talked about the importance of the biblical reward in the Gospel of Matthew being in the heavens, meaning beyond the reach of human hands, a reward that looks like no reward at all. And now at the beginning of chapter 11, Richard, we're shifting gears. Jesus has completed a course of teaching and is now moving on to do work in other cities. Right. Jesus was talking about making sure that the teaching goes out to everybody and hear all the different reactions that people might have. And here's the ways that you should be reacting, i.e. no matter what happens, you should always be teaching. But Jesus is full aware that people are not going to accept his teaching. So he does have to confront this reality and give his disciples the idea of the reality that they're going to have to face, which is that people will reject them, and this is going to cause scandal, and this is going to cause even violence at times. Jesus is teaching his disciples how to deal with the inevitable conflict that comes about when his teaching, the teaching that comes from the heavens, that has nothing to do with the kinds of teachings that we have on earth, comes in conflict with precisely those teachings of the world, of the empire, of the powers that be. And it bears repeating that 
the teaching of the heavens undermines everyone, including the one who carries it and proclaims it. And this is played out in all four Gospels in the execution of Jesus. The teaching of the heavens undermines the one who speaks it. Ideology lifts up the one who speaks it. So all of the people who are running around accusing the left or the right of being hypocrites or being judgmental or self-righteous, you're correct. They're both hypocritical, judgmental, and self-righteous. But the one who delivers the teaching from the heavens in a way that honors the authority that it bears is not being self-righteous. Because if you say exactly what the teaching says, verse by verse, letter by letter, with what's written on the page, as you pronounce the words, you're completely ruined by what you're saying. Complaining that someone is being arrogant or self-righteous and being pharisaical because they're saying what Scripture says has become another kind of ideological defense against the judgment of Scripture, and it's baloney. Father Paul always told us this example. When you go to the cardiologist and the cardiologist tells you not to smoke, and you see the cardiologist smoking, doesn't mean that then you should start smoking. When the cardiologist says, don't smoke, don't smoke. It doesn't matter if the cardiologist is smoking or not. The cardiologist knows it's bad for his heart and bad for your heart, so he is obliged to tell you that you shouldn't smoke. Calling your cardiologist a hypocrite is not going to help your heart. So if if the disciples are teaching a teaching that they themselves don't follow, it doesn't matter. This theme that we're talking about today, this kingdom, this teaching that is of the heavens and not of the earth, has been the theme of the entire book of Matthew. Remember, it's about becoming a citizen of this kingdom. If you're going to be a citizen of this kingdom, then you have to accept and be faithful to the founding teaching, the founding document, so to speak, of this kingdom, the constitution of this heavenly republic, you know, although it's not a republic, you don't vote in God's kingdom, but you have a teaching that forms the basis you are not allowed to see with the eyes of a Roman citizen. You can only see with the eyes of a citizen of God's kingdom. Again, this teaching is always trying to transform us so that in our mind, there's one single king, one single ruler, and that's God alone. When Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. It's interesting And important, Richard, that the act of teaching, the verb is didasko, from, you know, the noun didaskolos, the one who teaches, is separated from kiriso, which means to proclaim, to preach. So giving instruction, explaining, the way that we do Bible study, you teach languages, you explain context, you teach people how to read, is then given in conjunction with the kiriso, where you proclaim, you announce the judgment, you preach. The one who proclaims is making present the commandment. And in terms of what we were just saying, the job of proclaiming has nothing to do with the integrity of the one 
who is speaking. Here at the Bible as Literature podcast, you know, looking at the literature itself and looking at the vocabulary is so important. Jesus left the disciples. So Jesus is doing the thing that he said the disciples were supposed to do. Okay, go and teach. And then Jesus leaves. Do the disciples go out and teach? Do they do the right thing? How do they do it? How successful are they? We don't know. And it seems even that Jesus doesn't care. Jesus did his part. Jesus set up his disciples for success. Jesus sent out his disciples as apostles to go and bring the teaching to others. And then what did he do? He turned around and he continued to teach. Jesus did not stop to make sure that the disciples were all doing things as they were supposed to do. Da, 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 da. No, he said, go out, teach. Here's how you do it. Goodbye. I'm going to teach. And that was it. Imagine the scene of the disciples there all getting ready to go. And Jesus says, all right. And Jesus is the one to turn around and leave. Now, when John, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples. John, who's imprisoned under the tyranny of the present evil age, to borrow from Paul's terminology, and when we hear that biblical expression, the present evil age, the present evil world, we have to understand it in terms of the current authorities who control the earth. Remember, that's the other interesting thing about the teaching of the heavens. It's political in the sense that it opposes kingdoms, but the key point is that it opposes all kingdoms beginning with the one under which you live. So it's political, most definitely, but anti-political in the same way it's anti-ideological. You cannot see yourself as being on the same side as the teaching or the kingdom of the heavens. So John, who's under the boot of the very government that you support because you fear the power of death, heard of the works of Christ and sent word by his disciples. So he heard that someone was doing certain actions which he identifies with the teaching of the prophets, and as such, as one who is subject to the kingdom from whence such works are proclaimed, he sent word through his students. It's so important to understand that right after Jesus told his disciples what could happen as they're going about and teaching, that we come to John in prison. Without any explanation here in Matthew of how he ended up in prison, he's just in prison. But you're correct, Father, he's under the boot of Caesar. We know that. We know that his main job has been just teaching this very difficult teaching, and so we get a little foretaste of what it's like. Now, what I found odd here is that he heard about the works of Jesus. It doesn't say he heard about the teaching of Jesus. This could possibly be why John needs more information and he sends out his disciples because he needs to find out what is this person teaching? What is this person about? Because the works themselves don't proclaim what Jesus is proclaiming. It's the word that's important. So John needs to get the teaching. John needs to get the word from Jesus to find out what's going on. Iben afto CEO erhomenos. And he said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? And I dislike the translation in 
the New American Standard Bible. I prefer the elsewhere consistently translated title for Jesus, the Erhomenos, the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the coming Lord, and so forth, because the verb implies movement, which is ominous, because if the Lord is on the move and he's coming to claim his throne, the ones who imprisoned John are in danger. That's the key. Because remember, in the Old Testament, in its movement against Alexander the Great and the tyranny of Hellenistic philosophy and religion and empire, in its move against that oppression, it proclaimed the biblical God as being so ominous and so all-powerful that even Alexander the Great would tremble before his might. And that's the same theme here in Matthew, Richard. Because if you're in prison and you send word, you're sending word for help. And the question is, are you the one who comes in the name of the Lord? Are you the king, the anointed one of the Lord of hosts in Isaiah? It's a beautiful question. And this comes from what John was teaching when he was in the wilderness and talking about the kingdom of heaven coming. Remember, that's where we first heard about this kingdom of heaven is when John proclaimed it in the wilderness. John is talking about the coming of the kingdom of heaven. And so now John wants to know, is this the person who is of the kingdom who is coming to establish this kingdom? John wants to know, is this the one who is bringing the kingdom? Is this the one who's coming in the name of the kingdom that John himself was proclaiming that landed him in jail? Because John wants to know, was the teaching that he was teaching in vain? John wants to know, was he teaching the correct teaching? John was trying to follow scripture and ended up in prison. But of course, the question that comes to mind when you're in prison was, did I do the wrong thing? Because we are still human beings, we're still biological, and it's nearly impossible to put our faith completely in this gospel. And John has to know, did I do the right thing? Am I on the right track? Am I teaching the right thing? Let's go find out from Jesus because he's been doing these fantastic things. But I need to know more than just the actions, more than just the works, more than just the miracles, is the teaching correct that I have put my life on the line for? The answer to that question comes in the test of the content of what Jesus appeals to in his ministry. It's the content of the prophetic teaching. Jesus answered and said to them, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. In other words, you want to know if I'm the Messiah of the kingdom of the heavens? Come and hear the teaching that comes from the heavens, which you, John, will recognize because you're a disciple of the prophetic teaching and the law of God. And what's especially powerful about verse 5, Rich, is that blindness, the inability to walk, deafness, and ultimately death are all linked to the consequence of not hearing Torah. If you can't see, it's because you haven't heard the instruction. If you can't walk, it's because no one's given you the Lord's precepts. If you are unclean, it's because you haven't been 
made righteous by God's law. If you can't hear, there's no way that you can receive instruction, which ultimately in Deuteronomy leads to death. But here the dead are raised because the poor have the gospel preached to them. The teaching is what makes the difference, and that's why he says, go show John the things which you hear and see. He doesn't say, go tell John what you saw, okay? This is really the key, because John already heard about the acts. He already heard about the erga, the works. So now he needs to know about the teaching. When Jesus continues and talks, he doesn't just say, look, there were blind people who were able to see again. He references so clearly what was happening in Isaiah 35, because in 35.5, the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, and the lame will leap like a heart, and the tongue of the dumb will sing. So I'm using King James language here. But the context of what is going on in Isaiah 35 is, of course, essential. Because right before that, the verses say to them that are of a fearful heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, even God with recompense. He will come and save you. So the context is don't worry because the one who is coming is coming to save you. This, of course, applies very directly to John's situation. He's not going to save John in the way that the Roman army or the U.S. special forces are going to save you. He's going to save John in the same way that he saved Jesus, which is allow him to perish, but remember him on the last day. And then after the verses about the eyes of the blind being opened, it says, For in the wilderness will waters break out and streams in the desert, and the parched ground shall become a pool, and the thirsty land springs of water. When the people are in captivity in Babylon, God is going to return them like another exodus. But in order to do so, he has to bring them across the Syrian desert. But they're going to survive this lifeless area, the Syrian desert, this parched land, by making it as a habitable, wet, damp land with lots of plants and animals so that the people can live in the same way that God made the sea dry to bring the people out of Egypt. Now he's going to make the desert wet so that the people can come out of Babylon into the promised land. This is the image of salvation in Isaiah, and Jesus is hearkening to this. The one who is coming to free you and give you salvation is coming. He also, through using this reference to Isaiah 35, hearkens to this teaching about God bringing his people out of captivity once again so that so that they can enjoy the salvation of God's kingdom. In your discussion of Isaiah, Richard, you gave yet another example of the deadliness of political ideology that presents itself as authoritative, because in Isaiah, it is the Lord who makes the desert bloom, not the people or their worldly rulers. The one thing that Jesus says that is clearly not in Isaiah is that the poor are evangelized. The gospel is given to the poor because the poor, like you said at the beginning of the episode, Father, the poor are the ones who are trampled down by the powers of this world, and they are the ones who are evangelized. They are the ones receiving this teaching. The gospel is then given to the poor, the ones who can't help themselves, the ones who are 
poor, the ones who are beaten down in this world. I am giving them the means to enter into this kingdom, to become citizens of this kingdom. I'm glad you mentioned the word preach in verse 5. I want to contrast it with the word preach in verse 1. It's unfortunate, again, that in English we lack the technical precision to express the difference between these two words, because as I said in verse 1, the verb is kiriso, but in verse 5, it's evangelizo, which is a different term and carries a different meaning. It's bringing news. The one is to preach, right? It's an important verb, but here it's more specific because you're bringing news. It's often translated as good news, but as Father Paul says, I don't know if it's good news, it's just news, which is a nice way of saying that the news of the gospel, if you're hearing it, usually undermines you in a profound way. But that's the difference. And for someone who's familiar with our tradition, when you hear the word evangelizo, you immediately link it to the evangelismos, which is the Feast of the Annunciation, where Mary in the Gospel of Luke heard the news from the angel. So again, I can't stress enough how important it is to pay attention to the original languages because you have to ask about the difference of the meaning of these two words. Evangelizome is interesting because it has the root good, ev, and logos, which is the word. So it's the good word. It's the good word because it comes from God. How it's received may or may not be good. When dad comes home and says, guess what, everybody? The house is going to be clean by the time everybody goes to bed. That's good news. Everybody likes a clean house, right? <laughs> but if your room is a mess, that's not good news. Now you have to give up everything else you're planning on doing and go through all the old stuff and all the messy stuff in your room. So what is good news because it comes from the Father may not be good news in your situation. This is why it's good news that those who are trampled down by this world, those who are rejected by this world, those who are faithful to God's teaching, and therefore suffer in this world, it's good news, because this is the news of the kingdom of God coming. But how that's going to be received by, say, John's jailers, eh, they might not think of it as good news. I just want to add an extra nuance to what you're saying, Father. It's good news etymologically. It's the good word. But the way that good word functions for the individual hearer that is a bit different. We just have to keep in mind functionality as this teaching comes out. Now, kiriso, that is a different word. That's just about preaching. You can preach good stuff. You can preach bad stuff. It doesn't matter. So this evangelizome is specific about this good word, this teaching that comes from God, the teaching of the kingdom in this instance in Matthew. Que makarios estin os e an mis scandalisti en imi. I read it in Greek, Richard, to emphasize that word scandalon, which is a Pauline word, and blessed is he who does not take offense at me. The word scandal is linked to the stumbling over the teaching of the cross. As I just said about the news of the gospel, whether or not it's good news for you will be determined on that day in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. The key is that it's difficult news because it undermines your power. Are you afraid of Caesar? Are you afraid of the synagogue? 
and the authorities in your town? If so, what is your reaction to the imprisonment of John? Are you afraid that they'll put you in prison too? If that's the case, the teaching of the cross is going to be a problem for you. Maybe you're angry that they imprisoned John and you want to fight back and take up arms against the Romans. Maybe you want to burn the jail cell down and break him out. If that's your intent, suddenly this news that is preached in verse 5 is a scandal. It undermines you. And that's the teaching of the gospel. That's why it causes so much difficulty. Because who wants to follow a king who loses? John the Baptist ended up in jail because of teaching this word. Jesus doesn't say yes or no to John's disciples. He says, listen to the teaching. Blessed are the ones who are not scandalized by this, the ones who can accept this teaching. If you're scandalized by this teaching, because just like you said, Father, you've got something invested in this world and you're going to lose that investment, it's going to be hard to hear and it's going to be scandalous to hear. The one who is in jail and finds out that this guy is coming with a word, with a teaching. He's not going to burn down the jail cell and let John out. He's not going to stab Caesar through the heart with a sword. He's not doing any of these things. He's not going to just be frustrated. Jesus is going to continue to teach, and he's going to keep going. And he's going to continue to make more disciples to teach this teaching to more people. It's essential that this teaching goes out because it's this teaching that undermines Caesar. As soon as you destroy the prison, you have proclaimed that the prison has the ability to stop your business. Jesus is fine with the prison because John continues to teach. What's the big deal? The disciples are going out. They're teaching. Some of them are going to do well. Some of them aren't going to do well. Big deal. Jesus is going to continue to teach. He's going to continue to make more disciples. And you just keep going. As soon as you say that the prisons or the executioners or the judges of this world are able to do something good or evil, you're saying that they're functional. But as soon as you say they're not functional for me, you don't care if they end up in prison or not. You don't care if they look successful or not. It's only whether they continue the teaching. Hearing this passage in Matthew and reflecting on the imprisonment of John, for me, brings home discussions we've been having at St. Elizabeth about the situation for refugees and immigrants coming to the United States. Right, because we're thinking about people who are being held in cages, especially the children who are being held away from their parents. And we think of John in prison. A moment ago, I said the prisons for the person who believes in the gospel are non-functioning because the teaching can continue to be taught. However, one thing I need to say in light of what's happening is that we cannot stand idly by when we see cruelty happening. When we see those in power who are using power in a way that is not godly, we have the necessity to continue to preach. It's God who is coming to take care of those in his own way who are under the boot of the oppressor. For those self-righteous Americans who don't think of themselves as oppressors, I think it's important for us all as Americans to take a second thought about that, about whether in fact we are not or are indeed 
the oppressor. To this end, our community, St. Elizabeth, which, as I said, has been agonizing over this issue, came together to write a letter and send it to our senators in the state of Minnesota and also to our local representative in Congress, the representative for our district. And we will very likely share that letter on the podcast sometime this week. But we ask all of our listeners, whatever your political persuasion, you may be conservative, you may be liberal, that's completely immaterial to the gospel. It doesn't matter what your political beliefs are. It doesn't matter what your ideology is. All of us must be able to say that it's not okay to mistreat other people And we have to be able to find common ground to act on that for the sake of the common good. So please examine your conscience and ask yourself what our responsibility is for the sake of the foreigner and the outcast. And if you search scripture, the answer is black and white. For those who are scriptural, there is no gray area when it comes to the needy neighbor. God bless you and keep you. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Have a great week. Thank you, Father. You too. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.